Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time marking the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine in the company of Zarina Zabrisky, a correspondent for the Byline Times and other outlets currently based in Kyiv, and Denis Gansha, a member of President Zelensky's Youth Advisory Council. Before we do, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our wonderful monthly newspaper, which features the best of our online stories and exclusive content that you can't find anywhere else. So get details about how to subscribe over at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And if you do take out a subscription, thank you. If you've already done so, thank you as well. Let's welcome then Zarina Zabriski and Dennis Gansher. Dennis, hello, welcome. February the 24th, 2022 was the date of the invasion. Russian-backed forces had annexed both Crimea and the Donbass in 2014. Dennis, just give me a sense of what this last 12 months in particular have been like for you and your fellow Ukrainians. You know, this is one of the hardest questions people ask us, because right now we are here in Ukraine, you know, we are so afraid of next Friday, which will be February 24th, because believe me, Lots of people inside Ukraine will be crying because the year was really tough. And, you know, I'm usually talking to people from abroad. And, of course, for you, countries which are lucky, fortunately, not to have wars in many, many years, it's hard to imagine what war really is. The daily life has changed. You're not free. Every alarm, you're afraid that you may be killed or some of your friends may be killed. Every day you receive the news that someone of your acquaintances has died fighting for the country. And of course, all the terrorism, I mean not only the real terrorism, I mean sound terrorism that Russia causes to us, energy terrorism that Russia doing to us, it's hard. And believe me, we are tired, but despite this, we are coping. And mostly, mostly because of the great support from abroad. I'm saying this because, of course, in our own, it's not possible to tackle Russia, which is a lot of times bigger than Ukraine. And receiving your support and also your support, Adrian, by inviting me so many times to speak here to wonderful listeners of the Bylines radio, it's really great. And I thank you really much. But believe me, it's hard. This is what I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I can understand that, Dennis. But obviously, I'm here in the relative safety of the UK. And it's such an unthinkable thing for me to try and imagine what you've been through over the last 12 months. But as I mentioned, Dennis, although we think of the war starting on the February 24th, 2022, of course, Russia and Russian-backed separatists were involved in Crimea, as I mentioned, in Donbass, going back to 2014. So, in a sense, that was a prelude to what you've had to experience in the last 12 months. You know, it's hard to call this a prelude because still several of our agents were in the real war and they have lots of friends who are from Donbass themselves, so they experienced the war for the second time in their life. 
Of course, the last eight years, they were different, you know, with no real big fights in the last six years, war somewhere on the background. You knew that someone is fighting, something is happening, but you continue your kind, normal life. And of course, you know, I'm only 23, so you can imagine that the first of my life has been living in the war because I live close to Slovians, where the... Uh, war with Russia started uh, in 2014. So right now, the feeling which I discussed lots with my fellows who are mostly from the Western part of the country, that war has touched every single family of Ukraine. Everyone has heard explosions. Most of the people have friends or relatives who are fighting. And there is not a single person who is involved. Everybody is doing something to make sure that Ukraine does not lose this war. And people who are even, you know, making your money in coffee, they're still contributing a lot to the victory because we need to have an economy working. And this war is not only Ukrainian war anymore. You know, due to the recent polls in European Union, more than 60% in Europe feel that this war is European war also. And this is, you know... Having you supporting us for already a year and having Ukraine on the top of the media attention, this is what is wonderful, really, because this is not because the media is interested. This is because people are interested, people care, and people want to support Ukraine. Absolutely. Let's bring Zarina into the conversation. And Zarina, I know that you've been touring around Ukraine in recent weeks. I know you're in Kyiv at the moment. What have you seen in recent time? Hi, Adrian. Hi again, Dennis. And hi, everyone. Thank you for joining. It's a very important week here in Ukraine. And as Dennis said, not only for the whole world, it's a very important date. The last three weeks, I've been really all around, started from the very west, entering from Poland this time, and went from Lviv to the very south to Odessa, Mykolaiv, and Kherson, and Kherson Oblast, and from there drove through Dnipro and Krivi and Zaporizhia, and all the way to Donbass. And then from there, we also went very close to Belarusian border to a little place called Slavutich and around there. And then from there, back to Donbass and Kromatorsk and Slavansk, which Denis mentioned, and to Kharkov. And from there, back to Lviv and the Carpathian Mountains. So I really have seen most of Ukraine. If not, stopping there for long, then outside of the van's window, it passed by. And it's quite something. Right now I'm working on a big article for the Byline Times Supplement for the overview of everything that happened in Ukraine during this year. And of course, as you, Adrian and Dennis said, it's not the first year of the war. It's the first year of full-scale invasion, or as they call it here, big war. The war itself started in 2014, but this last year has been something unprecedented for this age. And I'm trying to cover the military, economic, political, and cultural aspects of life of one country during the war right now, based on everything I've seen and everyone I interviewed. 
One thing that's shone out of your report, Zarina, has been the incredible spirit of the people of Ukraine. And I know you talked about going to the Opera House. I think that was in Kiev, where live entertainment has been provided. Talked about people dancing on one occasion in the train station as well. And it's perhaps a cliche of war reporting, the incredible spirit and courage and resilience that people show. But you've made it more than a cliche. You've really brought it to life for us through your writing at Byline Times. And you have seen these things yourself, Serena. Oh, yes, I see it every day. I saw it tonight in Kiev on the way to a meeting. I saw a bunch of young people singing Ukrainian national songs, and it was beautiful. But again, as you said, I don't want it to be boiled down to a cliche. Yes, people sing in Ukraine a lot. They love to sing and they sing beautifully and they dance very well. It's just a very musical country. But apart from that, there's the whole spectrum of feeling and it's way more nuanced and complex. And I don't want the Ukrainian spirit to be boiled down or simplified to somebody singing Chervana Kalina or Ukrainian anthem, which are beautiful. I've seen a lot of devastation. I've seen deaths. I've seen dead bodies. I've seen a lot of dead bodies. I've seen shelling and destroyed houses, you name it. And tragic doesn't even describe it. So it's a vast specter. War brings everything to the extreme. It's living in extreme. And so, of course, the singing is so memorable because it's also a part of the extreme. Dennis, a year ago, it would have been unthinkable to those of us certainly in the comfort of Western Europe, to think of a, an ongoing war on the European continent again. But here we are. The United States has said it is concerned that China is considering arming Russia. We know that countries like Moldova are perhaps next in line for some kind of attempt at Russian control. And it's a time of great tension and fear now beyond the borders of Ukraine. Do you feel that we are now in World War Three in all but name? You know, I do like how, I don't remember who's of Ukrainian officials already said it, but I think he said it like 11 months ago. The World War Three is already happening. The one thing that it's only happening in one country where the whole world is fighting against Russia. And I have been saying during all my communications in the media at the events abroad that the longer the West waits to give Ukraine the weapons we are asking for, the bigger the risk is that this war will go somewhere not in because Ukraine has proven itself capable of stopping Russian army. You have seen this in Kharkiv region, you have seen this in Kherson, you even seen this right now in Bakhmut, in a small city in Donbass, which Russia can take for seven months already. President Zelensky has proposed the formula for peace, but it's only achievable when Ukraine is winning Russia on the battlefield. And of course, in the Russia's interest, it's to split the West's attentions to some other conflicts, to create new of them, 
And I would say that this year, at some point, will be tougher than the last one because something will happen, it's for sure. And we must make sure that Ukraine is not losing this year, that the victories of Ukraine continue because the whole stability of the region depends on it and the whole stability of the world depends on it because others, by others, of course, I mean countries like China, like Northern Korea, may wake up if Russia wins. And the United Kingdom has pledged tanks. It has pledged training for pilots. And Germany now has also said that it will sanction the use of tanks that it has sold on to other countries in Ukraine. I know that's been a slow process, particularly from the German side. I think people who understand history will understand why Germany's perhaps been rather more reluctant than other major European powers to be drawn into this conflict in any way. But are you satisfied now that the UK, that Germany, the United States are willing to offer more than just warm words to Ukraine? You know, let's go one year ago, exactly on the 19th of February of 2022. Then the whole world was talking of the possible full-scale invasion of Russia. No one was willing to give Ukraine something more than stingers and loves and some drones. And here we are a year ago talking, is the world slow on giving Ukraine the great high-tech fighter jets? I think Ukraine has done unimaginable process in the means of diplomacy, and the world has shown, of course, the great support by giving really lots of weapons which have become a game changer. But the one big thing we need to understand that both Russia and Ukraine are running out of ammo. If you see six from Russian side, they have been using more than 75,000 artillery strikes in April, when in December they do only 15 to 18,000. And now, if Ukraine receives all the weapons it is asking for, we have really good chances to win Russia in the battlefield because their army is tired. Their losses, according to Secretary Blake Lincoln, is more than 200,000. They don't have such a support as Ukraine has on the supplies of ammunition, tanks, and others. So they're mostly losing. They're not updating their means. And that's why we are asking the whole world to be faster. And Joseph Burrell, uh, I think today or yesterday, said in the Munich Security Conference that Ukraine receives a lot of applauses, but it should receive more weapons. As you describe it, though, Dennis, there's a sense perhaps that the world is always one step behind the reality. The West was reluctant to acknowledge what Putin was up to in 2014 when Crimea and Donbass were invaded. On the eve of the war, a year ago, the big war, as you describe it, a year ago, the West was slow to acknowledge the reality of that. And the West is also perhaps slow to acknowledge that we are de facto 
in a world war here with Ukraine, unfortunately, being the battlefield through which these powers are playing out their rivalries. So uh, as I hear you, Dennis, I'm thinking that the only way to head off this conflict is to be honest about where we are and to supply the weapons to Ukraine and perhaps, I don't know, supply troops to ensure that Ukraine is successful? Because I think we can be fairly confident that unless Ukraine is successful, President Putin will not be pushed back. You know, I cannot comment on supplying troops because I do think there is the reason why not a single country is joining this war by actually sending troops. I think that People who are sitting inside the military leadership, both in Ukraine and in Europe, they know the reason for it. Because let's not forget that still Russia is a very powerful enemy with the second most powerful army in the world, with the biggest nuclear arsenal. And yes, they're corrupted. Yes, they're sometimes stupid in their strategy. But still, this is a very powerful enemy. And to tackle this enemy, you must be strategic on what you do. And maybe from what we got telling inside Ukraine, that there is some kind of a plan, both inside Ukraine and inside NATO leadership, to tackle Russia. We just don't know it yet. So I really hope for this. And as I have said to you, the support, especially unannounced support we are receiving, is just great. The main thing that we the world must not forget is just to push our governments to do more because for years Russia was investing billions of euros and dollars to influence the European and American minds. And of course, maybe because of that, at some point, no one has reacted the same as we have reacted this year in 2014 because Russia was allowed a lot for the cheap gas and oil. You allowed Russia to do its propaganda inside your countries. You allowed Russia to have its own influence and presence inside even Great Britain. So we have done really great in this year, I would say. We have done a lot all together. But the big fight is still there. And let's push both our communities our governments, and even those people who are not supporting Ukraine to do more because we want peace to be established in Europe. Absolutely. And Zarina, a little while ago, you spoke to me about the threat to the Zaporizhia nuclear plant as we speak on this Byline Radio broadcast. There's been reports of two cruise missiles going perilously close to the South Ukrainian nuclear plants. So even without any military escalation involving other powers, this conflict, as we speak, risks nuclear catastrophe. Uh, yes, I would love to comment on that, but I want to comment on the previous statement of what Dennis was saying, because I just had the honor of interviewing uh, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, who is the U.S. troops' former commander in Europe, and he gave a brilliant breakdown and analysis on the needs of the weapons and the reasons some weapons are arriving later than needed, and also he had a really good point on 
on the Crimea being the most important, most decisive step in the future campaigns, that is the liberation, isolation and liberation of Crimea. And for that, he claims the long-range weapons are required, and they are even more important than the tanks, which, of course, are the armor to protect Ukrainian infantry because there are so many more Russians. And I spoke to a number of Ukrainian representatives like Natalia Khumenyuk, who is the press officer of the center south. So for anybody who is interested in the weapons aspect and some technical strategic details, you can go to my Twitter page and find all these interviews. They are really, really worth your time if you're interested in that sort of things, coming straight from the best experts. And answering your question on the nuclear threat, Of course, it was there from the very start go. Uh, Putin kept talking about the dirty bomb the week of the full-scale invasion. And as we know, the first to go was a Chernobyl nuclear power station. And I had a privilege of speaking to both defenders of Chernobyl power plants and Zaporizhia plant. And they were very, very close to a major, major disaster, which would not only threaten the ecology and environment in Ukraine, but in Europe as well, and in Russia, by the way, depending on where the wind will blow, literally. There were also a number of other factors, such as fires and even wildfires. And the fires started by the Russian shelling when the dry grass goes on fire and then it gets very close to the nuclear waste. And that is also very, very threatening. And I believe there hasn't been a day since the beginning of the full-scale invasion that we were out of danger in terms of the nuclear threat. The other day, in fact, a couple of missiles passed very close to Yuzhno-Ukrainska nuclear power plant, which, which is also a risk. So yeah, we were facing that, and I would not entirely exclude it from the arsenal of uh, anniversary gifts, quote-unquote, that we might expect from Putin. Because they say, and all the military experts confirm that, one of the major elements of the warfare is surprise. And that some move at the time when the opponent is not expecting it. In case of Putin, we all know that we are to expect something on the 24th because he is pathologically keen on dates, numbers, numerology, and so forth. So whatever he will do, we don't know, but he'll do something. They will do something on the 24th. And I wouldn't exclude some kind of nuclear power plant accident. Mm, it's very distressing thought, isn't it? But as you say, the anniversary is something that Putin tends to like. He likes dates. He likes things that tie in with elements of personal history or elements of Russian history as well. And it's so difficult, Zarina, isn't it? Because we know that there are people in Russia who oppose Putin. There will be many family members who have lost loved ones in this conflict. But anybody who dares to speak up inside Russia against Putin, anybody who calls this a war, simply says that this is a war, risks imprisonment. 
that is so, and I don't know if I want to comment on that because, you know, at some point in history before the full-scale invasion and maybe even the first week or so, I personally, and I'm speaking personally here, not representing Byline or anybody else, I might have had some pity, I suppose. And at this point, after seeing for a year everything that I've seen and knowing how many options there were for people to leave Russia, I I don't want to comment because anything I would say wouldn't be Mm. appropriate for the podcast. Sure. One thing that you've been keen to explain over the years, Irina, has been your view that this really is an attempt at a form of genocide, an attempt to wipe out the distinctiveness of Ukraine, to wipe out its language, to wipe out its individuality, to wipe out its culture, to insist that Ukraine is not a separate nation, is not a place with an independent history, but is part of Russia. Effectively, a a form of erasure is going on or an attempt at erasure is going on of a people. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for bringing it up. It's very, very important, this war. And I'm sure Dennis would also have a lot to say about that. This is an existential war. It's a survival issue for survival question for Ukrainians as a nation, as a state, as a people. And I've seen the burned books and I've heard stories, you know, of torture because I interviewed a lot of people at this point who were tortured by the Russians. In fact, in Kherson, I didn't interview the gentleman, but I interviewed his camera mate, right? The person who was with him in the camera at some point being tortured together. And that gentleman was a professor of history. And the Russians were making him writing articles about the history of Cossacks, rewriting history. And they were torturing him and using a lot of physical violence, horrible things, really, to make him write their articles. And I later visited the underground basement in which there was stuff from the partisans in Kherson. And I've seen the some of the articles that this person who was in the room with the professor managed to somehow sneak out. Not sure how. It's literally rewriting history, like literally, physically. And do you feel that, Dennis? Do you feel that this is more than simply an attempt to control the government in Kyiv, more than an attempt to ensure that the Ukrainian president, whoever that may be in future, is pro-Russia. But this goes beyond that, that this is an attempt to deny the very individual existence of Ukraine. You know, if you listen to what Putin has been saying this long speech, remember, three days prior to the full-scale invasion. If you read his article, which he released on Ukraine, I think a year before the full-scale invasion, and if you follow, you know, right now, lots of Ukrainian analyst teams, they have even analyzed how Ukrainians were presented in Russian sitcoms. And believe me, there is no single sign of dignity towards Ukrainians. Russians are just not accepting the fact that we are a separate state. 
they call both us and Belarus people their brotherhood nation, by which they mean that we are like, like how they say it, Malarosi or small Russians. And of course, they want to destroy everything Ukrainian. And we are just lucky not to see what would have happened if they taken most of our territories. But on the territories they have taken, I'm speaking about mainly top cities which are under occupation for already nearly a year, you would see that they are renaming everything, they're destroying Ukrainian. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's just so hard to sit at the place where a 100 fallen 40 million nation wants you to be wiped out from history. And this feeling, we just don't understand sometimes from which this hatred goes. And with the desire, the Russian soldiers are killing our soldiers, with what they're doing to our captive soldiers, uh, with the Ombudsman for Human Rights in Russia taking a young guy from Mariupol, like she's saying that I have become a partner, uh, a parent. They're stealing children from Ukraine. Of course, it's a genocide. It's, it's worse than any single action which we have seen in the last many years. Because, you know, at least in some wars which we are still having in the world right now, there is at least some motive like religion or beliefs or something else. But here you just can find the core of what is happening. Where do we go from here, Dennis? You've spoken about the need for more weapons, more support from the West and of the very tough times that Ukraine and perhaps some of the rest of us as well face in the next 12 months. Can you see a way forward, a light at the end of this very dark tunnel? You know, everything will really rely on how the next big war campaign will play out, because for sure both Ukraine and Russia are preparing for the new offensive. And I do think really that the war at this speed at this pace as we are having it today no one will be able to last it for a year long because as i have told you both ukraine and russia are running out of people running out of ammo resources money and everything so we will see in the coming three to six months what will be happening on their front lines and based on it we will be able to predict because of course both sides will be aiming to take as much as they can and at some point we will see at which point there will be some kind at least i'm not saying that we will have real negotiations because president Zelensky stated this very confidently that he will not negotiate with putin he will negotiate with the next president of russia but we will see maybe i hope some kind of negotiations but for me personally and uh, President of Poland, Andrzej Duda, said this very right. Let's accept Russian capitulation in Pereyaslov in Poland. Zarina, closing thought from you as we mark this pretty grim anniversary. 
Oh, there are so many thoughts <laughs> because we didn't touch upon the economy at all. And of course, you can't touch on everything. But I want to very briefly say that the economy of Ukraine is still standing strong despite of all the destruction and damage to pretty much every sector, heavy industry, metallurgy and trade. Of course, energy infrastructure is 40% damaged, but still working and actually doing better right now. And the labor market, because of all the mobilization and conscription and loss of life and, of course, migration, internal displacement. And it will be very, very hard for Ukraine to recover. And for that, Ukraine will need help and it will need the international legislation mechanism that will allow to not just freeze the Russian oligarchs and the Russian central bank assets in the West, but also apply them to the reconstruction programs. And on Tuesday, I'm going to be a part of the panel on the reconstruction of Ukraine. So people are already starting to think about how to restore everything that has been destroyed. And I've seen this towns and cities and villages that are lying in ruins and people are still living there without electricity and power and water and communications. So help is needed now and help will, will be needed later. So that's very important. But also one thing that I have for this audience and for the Western audience in general is a word of caution because the invisible war is the hybrid war. This is not what we talk about, but this is perhaps one of the most dangerous aspects of the war. Information warfare being a part of the hybrid war because I see the acceleration of the Kremlin narratives pushing on the Western audience. And I see that it's starting to work. And the Kremlin is usually very, very good at it. They have literally the armies of paid political technologists who do customized narratives targeting each group separately. So the left or radical left will be served one narrative and the right and far right will be served something entirely different. And every marginalized and not so marginalized group uh, will be targeted one way or another. And uh, right now there are so many of these narratives and currently the one that is really being pushed is the negotiations because Russia, as Dennis has mentioned, needs a break, needs a pause to regroup the troops and to get resources in place for a new assault. And so Putin really needs this pause and they call it negotiations. And a lot of people are falling for it because it's been served as the anti-war campaign. And I have the word of warning on this. This is not a sincere sentiment when they are talking about the greed and uh, say the US or the EU or the NATO or the weapon manufacturers making money. They're again twisting the reality and using some part of facts and truth to distort it and serve it in their interest. There can't be any negotiations, as Dennis said, quoting Zelensky, with the Russian government. You simply, and I said that before and I'll say it again, you do not sit down to dinner with a man-eater. You'll be eaten up. 
And also the problem can't be ignored because if you are in a room with a wild animal, forgive the word, you will be eaten at some point unless you do something. So instead of considering what is called negotiations or giving a break to the country, the aggressor country, we as the West, as international community, not necessarily West, perhaps the East or the South, we need to put together the effort to help Ukraine stand up for democracy against autocracy, because that's what it is about. Great to speak to you, Zarina. Thank you. We'll continue reading you at Byline Times. People can follow your Twitter account and see links to your work for Byline and for your work elsewhere as well, at Zarina Zabriskie on Twitter. Dennis, we send our love and solidarity to the people of Ukraine, and thank you so much for sharing time with us. Thank you as well, Zarina, for being there and reporting for us. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to our wonderful monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. Do support it and us, if you can, by taking out a subscription to The Byline Times. You get full details over at bylinetimes.com. And my thanks as well to Harvey White, who's helped to produce this episode of Byline Radio and The Byline Times podcast. We'll see you again very soon. Thanks for listening. But for now, goodbye. Cheers now.